Welcome to episode 12 of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the novella The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Welcome to The Reading Cure, where great books and great ideas are what we like to prescribe. My name is Dr. Stephen Davis, and my co-host is Dr. Alexander Fox. Now, the author of this week's featured novella, Robert Louis Stevenson, was a truly remarkable individual who, in his 44 years of life, which were plagued by severe bronchial troubles and extensive spells of being bedridden, nevertheless managed to travel the world befriend a great many artistic contemporaries, notably Henry James, and produce a vast amount of his own highly regarded writings, which made him something of an international celebrity. Stevenson was born into a prominent Edinburgh family whose profession was lighthouse design and construction, but rather than settle into the family business, the adventurous freethinker Robert opted instead to pursue a life of letters. He travelled extensively in the USA, Caribbean and South Pacific during the latter decades of the 19th century when he was alive and he eventually settled in Samoa where he spent his final four years um, of life with his family, becoming a prominent and beloved political figure on the islands which were undergoing the incursion of Western colonial power at that time. Stevenson was a prolific essayist and travel writer but he is perhaps best known for his iconic novels such as Treasure Island, Kidnapped and today's featured work, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So turning to this novella, this gothic mystery was first published in 1886 and follows investigations made by a London lawyer named Gabriel Utterson into his friend and client Henry Jekyll, an eminent scientist. Having recently been perplexed by his friend's decision to alter his will in order to leave his fortune to a hitherto unknown individual named Edward Hyde, Utterston learns that Hyde is actually a violent and reprehensible man, and he infers from Jekyll's evasiveness in explaining their relationship that blackmail of some kind is at its root. The truth, of course, is no mystery to modern audiences. Jekyll and Hyde are in fact the same person. Jekyll has engineered a serum in his chemistry lab that allows him to transform himself into Hyde and back again at will, effectively splitting off his unwelcome desires and behaviours into the form of Hyde, so that as Jekyll he can both focus uninterruptedly on his beloved scientific researches, as well as enjoying maximal public acclaim without any risk of being tempted into vice, and thus risking his precious reputation. Jekyll has gone as far as to set up lodgings for his alter ego in the then notorious district of Soho, from which Hyde has been engaging in various unspecified acts of debauchery. This convenient and highly dangerous arrangement soon unravels in a twofold manner. Firstly, when in a fit of rage, Hyde murders a prominent politician named Sir Danvers Carew in the street one night, thus becoming known to and pursued by the authorities. And secondly, when Jekyll loses control over the ability to transform back and forth into Hyde, with his evil double coming to increasingly remain present. 
The mystery is only revealed at the end of the story by way of a letter that Jekyll has sent to Utterston shortly before his death, which came in the form of Hyde committing suicide to evade capture. Now, just a short apology in advance of the main discussion section for this episode, which is that uh, due to some technology issues that were beyond our control at the time, we're having to use a backup version of a recording for this one. Um, It does contain some audible glitches at a few points so apologies in advance for that Uh, we do hope that you'll still be able to enjoy the conversation so first question on uh, dr jekyll and mr hyde then uh, alec um, so obviously it would be a, it would be an understatement to describe this as an iconic story given the degree of its cultural importance why do you think the Jekyll and Hyde scenario has proved to be such a compelling one? Well, probably on a, a really basic level, the, the battle of good against evil is one of those perennial themes. And Jekyll and Hyde as an allegory captures it very succinctly in a very kind of direct, almost pure form. So I could see that that would be one of the reasons why it's become so famous, so iconic, so much referred to in everyday life, because good against evil, you could argue that in various uh, forms, that is the theme of literature. So it has that ubiquitous quality. I think on a deeper level, um, if we're going to agree, at least for the moment, with Freud and his position in civilization and its discontents, uh, Freud advocated the view that we had to pay a price for civilization. We had to pay a price for being civilized and moral. And the price that we had to pay is that many of our desires had to go uh, frustrated, uh, that we would have to suppress them that uh, we would actually have we would actually carry a degree of ambivalence throughout our lives as a civilized creature and so this conflict between what society and what morality expects of us and also what we might want to do um you know what we might be tempted to do it, he saw that as the conflict of the civilized person. And we see that in Jekyll and Hyde too, don't we? Um, uh, That conflict. So if we were seeing it in a Freudian way, it is uh, exemplifying uh, the inner conflict that arises from being a civilized person. And, uh, you know, if Freud has a point, even up to a point, it's something that every civilized person could relate to. You know, the conflict between... Uh, what we're expected to do, what we should do, to put it one way, and what we would like to do. I, absolutely, yeah. It's interesting, actually. I mean, I, I um, in a few uh, points earlier when I was thinking about about our questions for tonight, Freudian ideas came to mind. I think it's hard not to really think about Freud when you when you reflect on this scenario. And I think that um, I, th- I think Jekyll and Hyde came out maybe maybe a few years, not that long before Freudian ideas particularly mm. became mm. more widespread. But I think it is like, in some sense, both are maybe reflecting on the, the kind of society, you know, the, the, the particularly the kind of Victorian era social world. Mm. And, uh, and, and it does, as you say, I mean, I think this this is the, the dilemma, I suppose, when society has very exacting 
public behaviours and morals and so on that are that are expected, then people are are going to feel that they're in a state of, of repressing aspects of themselves, yes. I would have thought. Yeah. So I, I think that is definitely something. I think that we'll probably um, be able to come back to, to these as we kind of yeah. deconstruct the, the book. Yes. Well, no, yes, I can, yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing is that neither of us are obviously experts in the Victorian era, but um, how the Victorian era is often understood is uh, that, y you know, public respectability was deified. There was a sanctity to your home life uh, and a sanctity to your public life. Yes. And uh, because the the standards that you were meant to uh, adhere to in your public life were um, quite stringent, you could see why that tension between the public and the private, between the persona and one's private self could be particularly stark for the Victorians. And, and yeah. so you can see why it would particularly have a ca captured their imagination um, as, a, as a horror story, uh, in a sense, you know, because what Stevenson was depicting was a, a sort of nightmarish scenario where you gave in to temptation and then you were ruined. I mean, obviously there's the supernatural elements mixed in of, with the scientific elements in the story. Uh, it's science fiction to some extent. But, you know, if we see it as an allegory, we see it as an allegory for what could happen if a Victorian gentleman was to give in to temptation. So it must have captured their imaginations and horrified them in some way. I mean, you know, while it's well written and there's a certain temperance to its style, it has almost a tabloid quality, you know, this idea of the very imminent Dr. Jekyll then becoming the most down-going, to use that Victorian phrase, of men. Yes, that's that's an interesting point. You're quite right. It does. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the style of the writing has that kind of formality, obviously, through through Utterston um, in terms of the voice. But yeah, it is, it is quite sensationalist um, in terms of the actual... The, the the way the, the plot unfolds um so well yes so, yeah, I yeah. Think, I think it would um, it's interesting i think that's a really good point that the way you're describing this this would capture particularly you know the kind of victorian audience um to me it, it did seem like it was almost like a kind of meditation by stevenson on this this problem actually of this split that that mm. maybe people who lived then particularly felt between the public and the private but it's interesting obviously the jekyll and hyde premise you know um, has endured, you know, far beyond that society. You know, people have continued yes, to yeah. find it. You know, I, th I think that's an interesting one to consider as well. Well, I mean, I think that's for a, a yeah. couple of reasons. Obviously, one of them that we've, we've intimated, that if Freud has a point, then as long as you have society, you're going to have this conflict to some yes. degree. It may vary yep. according to the society that, that we're in. But even if our society is seen as being much more liberal than the Victorian, there still is this discrepancy between the persona and the private life. And, yeah. and there's still this keen interest in um, scandal. Because, I mean, obviously what happens to Jekyll is a scandal of the yes. time. And scandals still obviously intrigue us because, um, you know, if, if we see fiction as a way of elaborating the consequences of certain actions, if we see fiction as highlighting how 
if we embrace parts of ourselves, what direction that we might head in towards, then, you know, we're going to be um, drawn in by the story of Jekyll and Hyde, even though That's... we're in a different uh, era. Yes, absolutely. I think you're right. I mean, I think there's actually a number of ingredients that the story has that do make have it, give it a kind of timeless appeal, actually. I think you're quite right about that. Um, I mean, it's, I suppose there's also the issue that a lot of drama um, relies upon the idea of characters who are not what they appear to be. You yeah. know, this idea that there's either due to some duplicity or because they have a dark side, um, that there's something about their surface presentation that isn't quite what they really are. And, you know, it struck me, I suppose that we're kind of hardwired to monitor and evaluate people around us just in general for the, the, the degree to which they're sincere or duplicitous. Um, because obviously in our kind of evolutionary past, you know, your survival could depend on the, on that fact. You know, you're, we're, we're, we're wired to be interested in, in whether, you know, the pres presented self and the, and the real or deeper self actually match in a given person. So, I, I, you know, I suppose that you could say that this story is almost like a kind of archetypal sort of drama of that you know, that's taken to such an extreme where well, there are, there's this split, you know, the, the good character is actually physically transforming into his absolute opposite, you know, yeah. and, and of course nobody realises this is happening for a period of time, you know, so that, you yeah. know, it really is quite a potent kind of dramatic concept, that really, I guess. Well, well, it is, and I think that's a good point that we are wired to, um, you know, work out... Uh, what each person's level of trustworthiness is, you know, from a biological evolutionary perspective, yeah. we we have to ferret it out in some way, um, you know, people's real character, because, yeah. you know, we know it's something that we learn painfully from experience that what, how people present themselves and who they are are, are nearly uh, never you know, the same, they're, they're yes. nearly never synonymous. So we have to, um, you know, work that out. Of course, one of the, the ironic things is that sometimes people present themselves as worse than what they are, uh, because, you know, this is to do with self-knowledge too. Uh, people can overlook their strengths uh, as well. So self-presentations and how someone actually is don't coincide. Um, I think, though, that what makes this uh, particularly a horror story, though, is that the evil is not located outside. This is not like someone needing to work out who uh, Iago is. You know, Iago famously said, I, not, I am not what I am. Yeah. You know, that duplicity was such an essential part of his character and but the evil was external in the in that sense you know yeah. you were if you were looking out to find out who's an iago then you're kind of imagining that the evil is outside but here uh in jekyll and hyde the, the evil is actually in everyone it's internal yeah. Yeah. and that that is something that would be unnerving to the readers of the time, it's unnerving also for us as well because it, it it forces us to look at our own character, our own nature, and that we can't uh, simply imagine that we are good and that others could be the evil lies outside us, it's external to us. Yeah, that's a great point. 
Um, it's interesting, actually. I don't know if you'll if you'll agree with this, but it struck me um, thinking again about this story that there's a sort of echo of the, you know, the the Ring of Gyges myth, you know, and and you know that Plato kind of. Yeah, and, you know, had this kind of famous thought experiment on, you know, the idea. Obviously, in that instance, somebody becomes invisible, completely unconstrained by any social considerations, and then what would they do? And obviously, here it's, you know, it's not invisibility; it's this, you know, this kind of magical, seemingly magical scientific, you know, power that Jekyll has developed to to be able to kind of live out mm. these unrestrained vices that he's tempted to do. But again, it is, as you say, I think what's key here is it's troubling because it raises, it's not just about Jekyll, it's about what's in everybody, you know, the idea that the the shadowy sides and the, you know, the, 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 the sides that are being repressed, I guess, you know, so it does, it does kind of um, extend widely in, in that sort of unnerving it way. Does. I, I it does. It does. I mean, I think that's an interesting point about the Ring of Gyges because the way I interpreted it is that uh, Jekyll, with great naivety, thought that the, the potion was like the ring and that if he turned into to Jake, in, sorry, into Hyde, he could then embrace these, these uh, pleasures, these desires unfettered. And then he could drink the potion again and disappear. You know, uh, I think at one point in the novel, it, it, I think it's in his statement of the case, Jekyll says that, that Hyde could be like a, a breath stain on a mirror. You know, he could just disappear. So he'd never been there before. Now, I mean, that is um, showing great naivety because, uh, you know, as, as the novel underscores, uh, Hyde carries out a variety of, you know, criminal actions, murderous yes. actions. And so that this idea that there would be no, uh, no real comeback necessarily is, is maybe a bit naive as, as well. Indeed, yeah. Um, but I think I mean, it is a, a similar scenario in, in that sense, though, isn't it? Really, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, the, I mean, if we imagine a scenario where Jekyll was able to uh, take the potion, become Hyde, take the potion again, become Jekyll, and had control over when he became Hyde, then I think we could have had a Ring of Gyges situation up to a point. Although so, yeah. Enf Enfield's story... Um, regarded the child shows that that you know Hyde could have been caught, and so it wasn't quite the same as invisibility actually. No, but but the thing that really takes it away from the Ring of Gyges uh, uh, story narrative is that uh, Hyde ends up gaining this control over Jekyll's psyche, he turns into Hyde without taking the potion, and then it becomes increasingly difficult to get his hands on the ingredients to return back to Jekyll. Sure. Uh, and of course, this is an allegory for addiction, how addiction can take you over, consume you. It's, yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Because he um, he, he says in his um, letter, you know, as explaining his actions that initially, you know, Hyde is much smaller than Jekyll and he says he was only, yeah. you know, nine-tenths of him was the good part and only one-tenth was mm. the evil part. And of course, as, as time goes on, this grows in strength and strength. So yeah, I think you're right. I think the sort of addiction idea, uh, you know, addicted to, I guess, vice here in general yeah. and, and the kick he's getting from being Hyde. Yeah, um, yeah. Comes out with his, his control, actually. Well, it, it does. I mean, yeah, to elaborate a bit on your idea of the Ring of Gyges, I think one of the interesting parallels between the Gyges story and the Jekyll and Hyde story is that both of them uh, 
are concerned about morality in as far as it's looking good. Yes, um, exactly. And so exactly. uh, the cloak of invisibility, well, you can do what you want because you don't need to concern yourself with looking good. Uh, yeah. you, you know, Plato had written this the story because it was to illustrate the point of, um, you know, how much are we actually good and how much are we concerned with looking good? And I think that uh, quite a good proportion of Jekyll's uh, moral psyche was uh, focused on looking good. Now, you know, we, we could, you know, criticise him as an individual, but it's clear that there's, there's no doubt a societal critique there, that in Victorian society where there's so much emphasis on uh, how you come across, respectability, your, your status in society, that looking good ends up having so much of a preeminence that it might actually be damaging ultimately to your moral character. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fundamental point. Um, I think actually that that's maybe one we will we'll maybe come back to yeah. a little later because I think yeah. I think you're spot on Jekyll's own interpretation of, of good and evil here is actually very suspect in this story and, and that's certainly something we're going to talk suspect, about. Suspect, suspect and yet common at the time. It, anyway. Well, indeed, indeed. The second question we're going to discuss, which ties in nicely yeah. with this, is about the character, the, the narrator, effectively, or mainly Utterston, the lawyer. And he is described, you know, differently from Jekyll. He's a he's a very formal, taciturn, emotionally unexpressive character. Um, but at the same time, he's described as being one that others like and trust and want to, want to socialise with, actually, despite his reserve. And he's also described as being very drawn to those who are downfallen now probably you know stevenson's chosen this character um in order to draw a kind of contrast here that we'll maybe maybe can come back yeah, to in terms yeah. of morality and so on but how in terms of utterson himself this kind of central character how would you kind of assess his psychology and um, how would you kind of see him well I, I think maybe the a good way of looking at the psychology is first of all to consider his function in the novel. Um, it's difficult for us to conceive of uh, Jekyll and Hyde as a mystery story now because, you know, most people that haven't read the actual novel know that they are one and the same. Yes. Whereas obviously a Victorian reader, uh, unless they'd heard from someone that had, you know, read the book before and then spoil it for them, yeah, would yeah. assume that they were two separate people. And so it's a mystery story in many ways. And and so I think that uh, Utterson being a lawyer is quite important to this being a, a mystery story because he becomes a sort of detective, doesn't he? And True. being a lawyer, uh, you know, people can um, confess to him. You know, uh, he's someone that... Uh, they could take into their confidence. And, you know, much of the story is written in terms of these 
private documents that are written for Utterson and Utterson alone to read. And being a lawyer, he's in this sort of privileged position. He deals with matters of law and order and of criminality and these these friends and clients can confess to him through their various uh, you know, letters. So I think that's one of the reasons why he chose a lawyer as the narrator. But a kind of deeper reason is that, you know, if we look at Utterson himself, um, you, you know, Stevenson writes that uh, he was, uh, you know, the last person to exert a good influence on downgoing men. Um, yeah. And so, you know, Utterson is this lawyer occupies this liminal space between law and order and criminality, you, you know, and he sort of tries to stop people that are crossing this permeable, permeable border between the two, you know, downgoing men that are about to fall into uh, disrepute. And he is um, this loyal and almost obsessed friend that tries to prevent that. Now, that then raises issues about his psychology because we could ask, well, to what extent is his uh, motivations altruistic, uh, a, a sign of being uh, a philanthropist in spirit, and how much is it to do with that because he's helping these men uh, that are falling into disrepute that he can actually uh from the sidelines you know um indulge you know vicariously in their sins yeah i think i mean i think that was an excellent assessment there actually of utterston's function in the novel uh, alec and i think i think that's what actually makes this such a great character and a well-crafted story in that sense is that he exactly as you described he has that extremely useful function that, that ties it together but i think it is more than that actually i think you're right i mean to me psychologically it seemed like he is the kind of you know kind of repressed victorian character maybe in a way that that jekyll who's more overtly battling with you know these kind of vices that he's really drawn to indulge in but yeah. he fears will discredit his public image utterston isn't really having that kind of battle with himself actually he's not no. needing to live any kind of double life you know i mean there's a little uh, um it describes him at the start um, it says that when the wine was to his taste something eminently human beacon from his eye mm. something indeed which never found its way into his talk but which spoke only in these silent symbols of the after dinner face but more often yes. and loudly it in the acts of his life and you know it's this idea that he's somebody who is quite um you know it describes his home life as very kind of barren he's and and i can i thought that you know it's interesting that somebody as kind of repressed and reserved as that is so drawn to the downfall and you know because there is this this perhaps sense of kind of almost a vicarious or, or a kind of facet, a morbid fascination in a way yeah. with those that have given into vice and so he maybe almost has a kind of sympathy for them because he you know, he's aware on some levels there's a temptation there, but he's not bold enough to actually, you know, bold maybe isn't the word, but, you know, he, he's de detached himself emotionally. He hasn't really quite taken on board, you know, the conflicts that, in the way that others have. Yes, um, yeah. Well, I mean, we know that the the novel in the main would, would not characterise his restraint as a lack of boldness because, you know, Jekyll's... Uh, boldness so to speak ends so badly yes. but for us reading it we can think that 
um, that whether Stevenson intended it or not, there is a kind of critique of Victorian morality in the character of Utterson. I, I yeah. mean, the biographer Hugh Kingsmill, when he said that um, that the the intention behind Victorian morality was to suppress the heroic, as he put it, and what he meant by that is that you know this is a a morality that fetishizes restraint, you know, yeah. holding back. More, you know, we see that in the character of Utterson that he, you know, one of the lines is that he drank, he drank gin in private to mortify his taste for vintages. So it's <laughs> like if you've got yep. any kind of abiding desire, you you know, the main thing is to restrain it, even if it is like occasional indulgences. And and we kind of see that in Jekyll's actions too, because before Hyde came on the scene, so to speak, Jekyll was doing a version of that himself, even though I think it's intimated that uh, that he, his indulgences were more of a sexual nature. Yes. But we can see in Utterson this paragon of restraint, um, you know, someone that, that follows rules of conduct religiously. I mean, we see that when uh, him and Enfield are talking about uh, the Hyde, you know, incident episode with the child and yeah. uh, Enfield explains why he didn't probe too much. He says, the more it seems like Queer Street, the less I uh, ask questions and, and uh, Utterson approves of this and thinks it's a good rule to live by because that, that's how Utterson uh, does things. However, I mean, there are complexities there in this story because Stevenson, for one, shows that even in the case of Utterson, uh, he, uh, there's intimations of, uh, you know, repressed desires. Uh, there's intimations of part of him is not, he's not entirely law-abiding. Uh, there's that little episode where he is accompanied by a police officer and uh, in, in a, you know, a carriage. And when he looks at the policeman, he sort of feels this pang of guilt that uh, the narrator says everyone feels. So I think there's the point yeah. that even if Utterson feels it, then it is, then it is universal. Um, I mean, he is yeah. obviously quite, you know, in some ways he, he he's, he's very loyal um, you know, he goes out of his way to to try and work out to what extent his friend Jekyll is in trouble. But there is also a sort of small-minded, narrow uh, perspective that he has. Uh, I, I was particularly struck by that uh, bit when he enters uh, Jekyll's house uh, with Poole the butler to, to find out what's actually going on in that room. Is Jekyll alive? Is is Hyde there? And he sees the servants um, standing at the fireside, and he's and he, you know the narrator says that uh, he was peevishly annoyed at this, and he says how unseemly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he doesn't really have much sympathy for the for the servants who are worried no. for their master yeah. Uh, yeah. there. 
Um, but it, I think, I mean, uh, yeah, sorry. So, yeah, I know. I think you're right. I mean, I think it, it, it seems like there's some, to some degree, there's a subtle critique, if not almost parody, subtly of, of Utterston by, by Stevenson in this, uh, you know, because it's, uh, he, there's no doubt his, his bachelor lifestyle, as it's described, is so conformist and restrained that it just seems very lifeless and barren. And, I, I, you know, I did wonder whether in a way, you know, this has almost been posited as an alternative um, to a alternative pseudo solution to to the dilemma that Jekyll describes. Mm, you know, this problem: mm. you, you have to be a respectable gentleman to get on, and and in his case, he's he's taking this radical move of of this serum so he can split off his dark side. And then in Utterston, you have complete repression. You know, an alternative strategy in a way, or maybe just an alternative kind of personality in terms of how he would respond to that. You know, very morally re- or very repressive um, society. But yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, if if we see uh, Utterson as a representative of the good life, then you know it is rather yeah. narrow and barren indeed in some ways. And and you could actually argue that to some extent his interest in helping other people, particularly downgoing men, is to lend a sense of, you know, spice to a rather bland life in in many ways. You know, the fact that he's living his life through other people's stories, um, it's a little bit like the reader that is living this life of uh, little incident and interest that, that loses themselves in you know, dramatic tales, you know, novels, a bit like maybe some of the readership, actually, of the original, you know, the original readership of the novel uh, there. So, yes, it isn't really a great, strong contrast. I mean, I was thinking that myself, that there is no robust sense of the good No, uh, here. There's no character, there's no Atticus Finch, uh, another lawyer, yeah. in this yes. sort of novel. Um, what no, you've got a- in contrast to Jekyll Utterson isn't necessarily that morally edifying or encouraging. Uh, as you say, there is a certain barrenness uh, there. Whether, whether that's what Stevenson quite intended, uh, I'm not really quite sure, but it's how it comes across, at least to us reading the novel. I think uh, another aspect of the psychology here that would be really important to to highlight is that um, this novel, as you might have gathered, has been uh, interpreted by some people in a queer theory kind of way okay. uh, yeah. in terms of uh, repressed homosexual desire. Yeah. And, and I'm not necessarily saying this is the only way to to read this novel, but I think, you know, when I read about this and then read the actual novel, that one thing that was intriguing is that um, the possible blackmail of Jekyll almost brings forth these nightmarish visions for uh, Utterson. And I thought it was quite telling that when he's lying in his bed, struggling to get to sleep, and he's being visited by these nightmarish visions, that he has this vision of, you know, Jekyll lying in his bed and Hyde coming to his bed, you know, tearing open the curtains of the bed and getting Jekyll then to do his bidding 
as yeah. it's put. Yeah, that yeah. it's quite a very, it's quite a telling kind of dream to have, at least for us that are more influenced by Freud. There, I think I, you're I, right, and and it's it's interesting that obviously the time this was being written, you can see in the, the as you suggested this sort of faint allusion to the idea that you know. Utterston has is, has concerns that Jekyll and Hyde, you know, thinking they're separate people, there's a sexual relationship. Yes, there, and this is blackmail. You know, but it's like that's such a scandal in that world. It's not even put into print what he fears the scandal might be. Exactly, no. it can't even be stated. So there is a kind of sense of that level of of fear and repression around uh, sexuality, without doubt. Well, um, yes, I mean, it's the unspeakable at yeah. that time. It, it it could be alluded to, but it can't even be directly stated. It, it's yeah. so awful a proposition. But I think the thing is that, you know, what's ambiguous about Utterson's response when he's having this nightmarish vision of... Jekyll being disturbed in his bed by Hyde is that it's ambiguous because it is both horrifying and compelling for Utterson. So we've got this case of, well, a classic case of, you know, repressed desire, really, that there is both the fear and the attraction uh, welded together. Yeah, it's it's very Freudian again, isn't it? I think it is. And and this idea of Hyde being the younger man, uh, obviously his youth can be interpreted symbolically in a number of ways, but, uh, you know, this, this younger man that could possibly be blackmailing him yep. uh, and, you know, Jekyll leaving all his money to him, I mean, that could suggest both blackmail and a degree of intimacy Yes. that in that society would have been seen as scandalous at the time, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that, well, indeed. And and when Utterston obviously, you know, brings this up with Jekyll, you know, his concerns about this, you know, he won't, he doesn't push it too far, I guess, because he, in some sense, maybe doesn't want to hear or, or you know, when when Jekyll says, you, you know, just leave this, Utterston, don't, yeah. don't um, push me on why I want to do this, he, you know, he leaves it at that because he kind of has to in a way, I suppose. You know, it's if he's got if this friendship is to maintain, it's like they can't go into that territory. Um, although that's not what it actually is, of course. But you know, as as far as Utterston would see it, that's yes, maybe, maybe at root of it. Um, yes, and and I mean the thing is that there would also be an understanding that if it was a sexual relationship, it could not be, you know, discussed openly. No, no, uh, no, no. it could only but be alluded to. Um, this is, yeah. you know, this is, I think, a part of the novel. So I do, I do think some of the queer readings have a certain cogency, um, you know, here in terms of what what is seen as threatening. You know, why desire is seen as threatening. Um, yeah. Obviously, it, it's threatening because you know it is not socially approved of at the time, but it is also something that. The characters may feel because um, women are not generally present in this novel. I mean, there is the, the maid that sees the the murder of Sir Danvers Carew, and and you, you know the, the some of the servants, but they, they're not that important um, to, yeah. in the novel. It's quite a homosocial world of bachelors. Um, yeah. I mean, that's also structurally 
needed as well because you know if if Jekyll was married it would be rather difficult for him to to leave as Hyde and live that life so he needs to be a bachelor but I think also that bachelor homosocial world that they're in um, you know there is the the possible subtext of uh, homosexual desire yeah. yeah, and it's it's interesting that as well because it, it, it struck me just reading a little bit about uh, when the novel was written. Um, obviously, you know, famously, you know, uh, Stoker's Dracula. You know, this idea, dr- yeah. you know, the the dream that he had that, and you yes. know, the, the, where um, Dracula says, you know, this man belongs to me, and the kind of you know homosexual undertones to that, which Stoker himself may not have been entirely conscious no. of. Actually, it's it, you know this this novel Jekyll and Hyde apparently was written when Stevenson was extremely ill in a kind of frenzy over a number of days, which you know again there's a sort of almost Freudian free association quality to that and that there could be a lot of unconscious um, ideas in a way uh, being expressed and explored here that Stevenson himself may or may not have been completely aware of and I think well I mean that that is possible um, I was reading uh, a little bit about this from that queer theory perspective and apparently uh, Stevenson you know lived quite a bohemian lifestyle for the okay. time, yep. and that um, he had some gay associates or some men that that maybe were uh, gay but hadn't quite, you know, avowed it to themselves at the time. And it does seem as though some of these associates had fallen in love with them. Mm-hmm. It, it did intimate that he wasn't. It it wasn't clear, you know, how Stevenson himself was. You know, right. was he okay. bisexual? Okay. Uh, was he straight? It's not clear, but but certainly he 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 moved in bohemian circles, and so that aspect of life would be particularly obvious to him. Clearly, he didn't have the, the typical Victorian attitude yeah. to that. Uh, we do know that he frequented uh, female prostitutes. Okay, um, but as you say, maybe part of his subconscious, maybe there was a. A homosexual desire there on some level yeah, that I, came just, out through the story. I wonder, yeah, um, I mean, but certainly it sounds like, um, you know, a different uh, different character from Bram Stoker. Uh, and obviously yes, maybe yeah, more yeah. Of a, well, I think... You know, um, self-aware exploration there. Yeah, I mean, you know, quite a few people have written in the case of Stoker that he had, uh, you know, very admirous uh, attachment to his... Uh, to his, you know, he managed Henry Irvin, who was sort of the Laurence Olivier of the time. And, uh, you know, it's intimated that that Stoker might have had what we could call, you know, in a straightforward way, a a crush on Henry Irving. And some some people have argued that Dracula is sort of a stand-in for Henry Irving. Um, Whether that's the case or not, it does seem like there is... um, a queer theory reading of Dracula, you know, this idea of the other, at the time anyway, what would yeah. be defined as the other, and the yeah. perceived threat of that at the time. And this seems to be part of the, the Jekyll and Hyde uh, story, uh, yeah. that, that Utterson is frightened that Jekyll is in some gay relationship and is getting blackmailed. 
but it doesn't just frighten him. It also he's also obsessed by it, compelled uh, by the nightmarish vision of it. Suggests that there could be some attraction there as well. Yeah, I I, th- I think that's it. Well, you know, coming on to another, you know, again, Freudian theme here in this this next question, really, just looking at a slightly different mm. angle. And um, So Hyde is described in the novella as given, it's, it's often described as giving the impression of deformity without actually being deformed and inspiring murderous hate in all who see him. And so the next question to explore was the issue of whether we think, is this simply because... Hyde has an, an extremely evil presence and it's just it's a straightforward one or was Stevenson maybe suggesting that this reaction <clears throat> is more about the average person in terms of what they are battling within themselves you know the idea of what what it is about themselves that being in Hyde's presence evokes that that produces this this wish to murder but I mean it's very clear he, he repeatedly when um, de- describing these scenes involving Hyde and um, you know there's the, the very respectable doctor for example who comes out to help the child that Hyde is injured so on all these people who see him it says they want to kill him on sight it's that it's not just they find him repulsive they want to murder him so I thought you know that's an interesting point isn't it that um, again you know I thought a kind of Freudian reading there could be the idea of this you know extreme disgust being a kind of reaction formation you know that comes over a repressed wish you know the idea that maybe when they see Hyde they are both repelled but also allured by something in themselves that they're really they're battling against you know um i don't know yeah, what, did, I mean, did you the, think that that's that kind of freudian take works there is that is there something of that yeah i, I think it does I, I mean if you look at the novel the idea that you know we, once we complete the novel we'll be aware that the author would wish to convey that uh, everyone has a hide side yeah, to yeah. themselves so you know I'm sure that the way in which they react is, as they say in psychoanalysis, a reaction formation, you know, a, a, yeah. a, a sort of repulsion because it evokes something in themselves. I'm sure that is part of the way in which they react. The vagueness of, you know, the lack of tangibility about what this evil presence is, I think it's, you know, Steve's way of not locating it solely in Hyde, you know, giving okay, it this yep. sort of more general air. Uh, they can't put quite their finger on it because it isn't just in him, so to speak, no. but in themselves too. I but think also some, something for us to keep in mind is that the Victorians um, were deeply affected, as you can imagine, by Darwin's theory of evolution. And what they were particularly worried about was that if man could evolve there could also be devolution yes and and so they were worried about degeneracy and they had this view which you know has long since been discredited for obvious reasons that how someone looked would give you an idea of their moral character so you know this, this sort of um seeming deformity but not too tangible i think is also invoking this idea that uh that that you know hyde was uh epitomizing a, deg- a degree of degeneracy 
yeah. uh, uh, that he represented the sort of devolution because he's rather small and stunted as he's portrayed yeah. uh, there. And the Victorians had this fear that that devolution could be contagious, you know, that degeneracy. Uh, yeah. and, and so it's almost like something that could contaminate and, you do, you know, that you wish to step back from and uh, not yeah, get think, too close to. I think that, um, that's actually a very good point because it seems such a silly notion to us now. But, I mean, I remember from, from some of my sociology reading in the past, you know, there was the, the criminologist Lombroso who I think actually went to prisons and looked at the shape yeah. of skulls of various prisoners and and there was a you know a serious theory about alternative yes. evolutionary branches of humans who were yeah degenerate as you described so yeah i suppose i suppose that's that is a point we should keep in mind here as to what part of the the uh, might have been suggested i think Hayden's, so in this this horror that he inspired um, well i mean if you look at uh how hyde's actions were described when he attacked sir danvers carew the phrase is with an ape-like spike yeah. Uh, so it is this reference to the ape in oneself. Yep. Um, actually, in the, the marvellous Frederick March film version, uh, he is portrayed almost as a Neanderthal, uh, there to, to highlight that uh, this is connected with our animal past. Yep. This is something that we could talk a, a bit more about when we look at the nature of good and evil in this novel. Um, yes. You know, how the animal side of us is actually portrayed. Uh, but yes, for the yeah. Victorians, the animal side would have been the non-civilised side, the, the, the side that would be degenerate. And Hyde, Hyde epitomises that in some ways, you know, with his um, small, you know, seemingly stunted uh, demeanour, but not not to the extent that it is so palpable, uh, almost like it's the beginning of degeneracy. I, and, yeah. and, and uh, you know, that is what's frightening because you could see the beginning of the illness, so to speak, and this is what frightens them. Uh, to, yeah. to return to your point about them wanting to murder him, attack him, yeah. I mean, it is quite an interesting reaction that that's a response to the evil in Hyde, that they then want to attack him. Uh, you know, yeah. it's not necessarily the most... Uh, civilized response it's because he touches on something so visceral so primal uh in them and i think from a psychoanalytic point of view this idea of destroying uh something that embodies part of yourself that 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 you hate yeah or you struggle with i mean it might seem a little bit odd to bring in john Wayne gacy at this point but okay. i think john wayne gacy is an excellent illustration of this because uh, if anyone's watched the, the netflix documentary about him or read about him uh john wayne gacy was brought up in this uh, environment with his dad you know ridiculing him for his seeming effeminacy and gacy was bisexual and i think part of him hated what he saw as that more effeminate side of himself and so you know, his way of dealing with that was to have sex with young men and then murder them. Yes. You know, almost like he was trying to kill off that part that unfortunately came to despise because yeah. of his upbringing. And so, you know, you, that's a, a real life example of this compulsion to try and, you know, yeah, destroy. 
part of oneself that that uh, you're struggling with, and their desire to murder or at least attack Hyde um, is similar in that regard. I'm not saying that the parts are morally the same, of course. But no, no, no. I think it's, um, I think you're right about that parallel, though. I think I mean it's clearly suggested here that all the good citizens we meet have this potential for violence buried within them, and it is triggered by. By when they see Hyde, and one, and obviously one of the things they're, you know, part of that is is recognising the unpleasant sides of him, but it's also recognising that they keep talking about his being very fleet of foot or light on his feet mm. and very energetic and spontaneous, and you know, so it's things that we wouldn't now consider to necessarily all be, you know, evil. You know, no. these could actually be healthy traits to some extent, but but yeah, what the the commonality is, they're the the repressed parts that, as you suggested, could be seen as more animal like, ape like. Yeah. And it's it's definitely seems like he has you know they're they're, they're given this vision of somebody that symbolises all that they want to both control in them yeah. themselves, but on on a, on another level actually unleash. And so you know that it's like they're killing. They want to kill their shadow side in in yeah. him. You know, it's that kind yeah. of you know dramatic um, way to somehow remove this inner division. You know that there's that. Well, it is. Yeah, he's, he's inspiring that. So. Yes, it is, and and I'm just thinking about another example. As as you would expect, I'm going to refer to Harold Pinter again. But one of his shorter <laughs> okay, plays, <yeah. laughs> one of his shorter plays, one for the road, is about um, you know this political torturer torturing a, a dissident, and yeah. we don't really hear much from the victim. But the torturer has this idea that the victim has. Uh, all these kinds of doubts and uncertainties. And really what it is, is that, you know, the, the torturer is a political fanatic, but deep down there's all these uncertainties and doubts, which he then has transferred onto this dissident. And that's why he's wanting to torture and kill the man, yeah. because he wants to strangle his own doubts. Absolutely, and yeah. So it's, it's something similar there. I think it's part of human nature, unfortunately, to try and detach certain unwanted traits, project it onto other people and then harm them in some way as an attempt to, uh, you know, create a sort of inner peace of sorts, even though that doesn't really, uh, you know, obviously work um, there. Yeah. I think another aspect of it, which is not saying something great about ourselves, but is the case is that um, you often find that that people are tempted to prove their goodness by attacking people that are bad. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, they are so you know I mean don't yeah. I mean don't get don't get me wrong, I could understand why people could be really angry and hurt at the you know, say what a Peter Suckliffe the the Yorkshire Ripper did. Yeah. But if you if you watch the footage of, you know, the police van arriving um, at the courthouse or at the police station where he was first apprehended, yeah, yeah these people are baying for blood. Yeah. And yeah. They, I don't think that they, I think they would have ripped them limb from limb. Yeah. And they would have done that, I think, because obviously the horror of what he committed, but also I think it, in a way it's a sign of, them thinking they're proving their righteousness, their goodness, and even though I don't think that's the best expression of it. No, that's true. I think you're right. I mean, we see in the in the scene in that novel where 
Hyde has been apprehended after his assault on the child, you know, where he, mm. where he tramples over her. You know, the the degree to which the, you know, the, the good citizens that get involved are willing to, um, you know, go to ruin him to get, you know, there's, there's a kind of, un, obviously deserves retribution, but there's a, almost a vindictiveness in this, you know, and how far they're willing to go to squeeze as much money out of him. And, you know, there is, as you say, it's, it's not just a straightforwardly good, kind empathetic reaction for the victim there it's going further than that there does seem to actually be you know repressed hostility coming out in, in this in yes, almost a de- yeah. need to demonstrate goodness by and bond by yeah you know well i, I the, think the bad I'm, yeah i mean that that episode with enfield and hyde and so on yeah. Um, you know it's quite amusing in a way i mean i i thought to myself when i was reading the the novel that uh, they spent time together until the bank opened in the morning, yes, and right. and the idea that you're spending time with this person that you know left you with a sense of evil incarnate that had stomped over a child. I mean, what kind of conversations did they have until yeah. the bank opened? Yeah. Um, it had almost a camp feel to it. That you know, this idea of them hanging around together. Until yeah, he, the bank opened, it had a degree of plausibility to it. Yeah, I think right. another implausibility to it is that, you know, if you saw um, such a, an act happening in front of your eyes and you were able to apprehend the man, this idea that you extricate money from him rather than hand him over to the police is well, a exactly. bit odd. Yes. Um, really, there. What? They threatened him with uh, harming his good name, even yep. though obviously he didn't have a good name, but they threatened him with that, and Hyde is, is not immune to that threat because he's obviously thinking about how it could impact on Jekyll and therefore himself yeah. too. But, but you know, um, it did seem quite an odd way of uh, punishing him for what he did, uh, you know, there, to, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that highlighted, well, on the one hand, the extent to which loss of a good name would be seen as such a terrible exactly. prospect back then, you know, more far more so than the loss of the money. But, but yeah, also the fact that they wanted to, you know, they took the chance in a sense to try and squeeze them, you know, for as much as they could get, you know, rather than simply just hand them over to the police and move on. They wanted to stay and be involved in this. And, you know, there was a kind of enjoyment, presumably. You know, the, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a it's an implausible scenario, as you suggested, this all-night vigil till the bank <laughs> opens. But, but assuming, you know, taking it as, yeah. it, as it does seem, yeah. you know, what were yeah. they hanging around for there, really? You know? Yeah, I mean, to, to, to be honest, I don't think I would have felt comfortable having a nap in Hyde's presence. Uh, did they have the set? Did people have the take turns following Hyde to the bathroom in case he did a runner? Yeah, um, it does evoke a lot of questions. That, um, that it is quite an amusing um, one. But I think, yes. you know, getting more serious about it here is that, um, yeah, the, the right thing to have done would have been to hand him over to the police, you know, given yes. what he had done. Yeah. Uh, but here we can kind of see that there is a certain aptness to them threatening him with uh, ruining his good name. Because as you say, it em- emphasizes the importance of your good name, of yeah. respectability. But I think it also, um, in a, in a, less direct way emphasizes that they are getting a certain sadistic pleasure yes, I from so. uh you know punishing them in that way. So actually sadism of a sort is entering into this. 
Well, they, uh, they, wanted, the, they wanted to kill him, as it's yeah. They wouldn't because, again, they're good names and so yeah. on. They're, you know, restraint. So, yeah, they, they, they try to almost symbolically do that. You know, they want to extract from him, you know, in this way, in the, you know, in the form of, you know, almost like a slow torture um, punishment yes, for yeah. him. Which, again, you know, obviously he deserves a punishment because he's done something horrible. But, again, it's the, the personal investment in it by them rather than, as you say, simply handing him over to the authorities. Well, that has the sadistic yeah, vibe to yeah. it, really. You know, I, think. I do. I do also have to remind you, though, that you know, if if people have listened to a recording of free on free will, that yeah. the idea that Hyde deserves punishment, <laughs> given <laughs> what we argued in that recording. Um, Good point. There's a, there's you know, a, we're not being consistent there, actually. No, um, right, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think about, yeah, we maybe won't bring in that that side of the whole debate there about deserving. It's not a, but, it's not a strong but, argument, Matt. You're quite right, yeah. Um, but yes, if we were looking at what uh, was the right thing to do, what was going to protect people more, I think yeah. it might have been more handing him over to the police. But obviously, if he was handed over to the police and he spent time in jail, it wouldn't have been such a riveting tale, wouldn't well, it? Well, um, there, there is, there is that, <laughs> that basic point as well. So maybe then moving on, to, you know, to another aspect of this, mm. which again highlights these, these kind of undercurrents to it. Um, Jekyll, in the letter to Utterson after Hyde has been found having committed suicide, he explains his rationale in developing the serum as being an attempt to, to solve what he sees as the irreconcilability of his good and evil urges um, and, and so it's, it's essentially he describes it as a means for him to become a more kind of perfect and unimpeachable mm. citizen um, in the role of Jekyll by, by splitting off the, the Hyde part of himself now from a sort of men, you know good mental health point of view obviously we know this isn't literally a thing that anybody can possibly do mm. in that sense but you know, if we were to sort of imagine a character battling with that kind of sense of inner division, what, from a good mental health point of view, would have been a better way for Jekyll to try to deal with those kind of feelings and, and, and thoughts, do you think? Yeah, I mean, what, what we see with Jekyll is this striving after a kind of moral perfection, yes. a, a desire for purity. Yep. And that's why he wants to uh, separate and siphon off his so-called evil side. Um, and that is his downfall, this uh, unwillingness to accept that he will have less commendable sides to his nature. So I think that from a mental health perspective... Uh, I didn't think I would ever talk about acceptance and commitment therapy, otherwise known as ACT, in relation to Jekyll and Hyde, but here <laughs> we go. <laughs> but the acceptance Absolutely. and commitment therapy perspective is that um, we have these thoughts, feelings, and urges that we may not like, but uh, our psyche is like a ch you know a checkerboard, and so there will always be these aspects to our nature. We have to accept that there will be these dimensions. Yeah. Uh, what is more important is what you act upon. That's that's the commitment part of it. So it's mm -hmm. this recognition that, yes, you will have desires or impulses that aren't always moral. That's part of being human. Yeah. But it doesn't mean to say that you can't commit to the values that are important to you. I mean, to be honest, you couldn't have a notion of commitment unless there was a degree of inner conflict, couldn't you? Um, there'd be yeah. no point in making 
marriage vows uh, in the interest of fidelity if if lust was not and cheating wasn't an option. Yeah. So uh, I think acceptance would be a key part of it. Acceptance of being, you know, to put it in the most, you know, banal way, a mixed bag that you know yeah. that we're all a mixed bag of uh, good and bad, and obviously more neutral qualities too. But yep. Jekyll can't um, accept that. That's probably in part to do with his ambitiousness. Uh, there, I mean, it would be his, his so-called moral ambition, but I think it's also his scientific, his ambition. Sorry, as a scientist, yeah, that pushes him to try and separate out these parts. Um, and and so yeah, I think acceptance would be a key part of it. Another key part is sort of something that Freud emphasised with his notion of the ego. When we when we're talking about ego here, we're not talking about ego in terms of. Um, the self-aggrandizing part of our natures, but the ego in the sense of the self, the conscious yeah. self. And yeah. Freud's uh, aim was, to, you know, he says, wherever it was, their ego shall be. And what he meant was to make these urges, these desires conscious, because if they're conscious, then you can integrate them into your psyche you could also be more aware of how they might impact on your actions whereas suppressing uh these aspects of our nature they may then work underground so to speak and come out in um you know you may act them out in a compulsive way in an addictive way yeah so consciousness consciousness awareness of these aspects is so important from a mental health perspective too. Um, just one other point I would want to to make is mm -hmm. that uh, here is that um, I think it's important and probably we don't need to be reminded of this as much as the Victorians because we are more cynical and sceptical, I imagine, than the Victorians were. But we have to bear in mind that what society defines as good and evil isn't actually necessarily good and evil. Um, uh, you know, Jung's idea of the shadow illustrates yep. that because, you know, he said that uh, the shadow might actually have some good qualities, but our society may not give us much opportunity to express them. Uh, you know, we know, I think, more so than the Victorians that convention and morality don't necessarily coincide. So yeah. I think, like, from a mental health perspective, we have to be critiquing our norms and thinking about, is this actually bad? Um, you know, ob yeah. obviously, at one point, uh it would have been wrong for a woman to to not get married, you know, at one point in society. Yeah. That would have been bad. Yep. But obviously we can see that it is not inherently bad. It is more yeah. how that society ideologically defines it. So I, I think, again, in terms of our mental health, we have to consider, think, you know, good and evil ideologically as well as constructs. Yeah. You're, you're quite right. And, and uh, in fact, I'll, I'll probably come back to this. There was a supplementary to the question, which was, and, and it, isn't, it isn't really actually separable from the point about mental health, which was this fact, is Jekyll's implicit definition yeah. of good and evil actually valid? And I think you've you've partly answered that. But just if I can, in terms of the, sort of the psychological aspect before we come back to that one, yeah. um, I think, you know, that was interesting, obviously, um, you know, the, bringing, in, bringing an act there and, and obviously again the, the Freudian ideas what um, had struck me about uh, about Jekyll's professed 
um, mission and here is that it's, it's it sounded a bit like the the kind of as we discussed in an earlier episode the Karen Horney's kind of neurotic quest for for glory idea because I, I, to me it seemed a bit like what Jekyll was seen as you know he, he kind of s- states that he, he he both has you know he's this dual being and that there's the good part and the evil part and he's kind of both invested in both but it's a bit like the the good part is almost a bit like the sort of ego ideal you know the kind of what he thinks his public self should mm. ideally be and he's it's almost a bit like he's he's aware he has these you know urges to vice that don't fit with that mm. and he's decided they're just like a separate self within himself you know it's like he's done a kind of split and he's you know it's, it's there's a kind of in a way almost neurotic and i think you're right about he, he wants to advance his scientific career and there's the curiosity definitely driving it which you could say is a little bit more authentic but there definitely does seem i think you you, you initially said this kind of purity you know this sense mm. that he, he must be absolutely all of one and then he can also mm. be absolutely all of the opposite you know there is there's a there's definitely a sense of somebody trying to almost make themselves their their idealized self in a way that is yeah. clearly impossible and going to be very very destructive and and divisive actually um you know well yes of, yeah you know, and and um, we have to admit that um if we construe our ordinary humanity as fallen then there could be that temptation you know from a religious point of view yeah absolutely um yeah. this idea of trying to then uh you know, rise up again from that fall into some, as you say, ego ideal kind of state. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he has he has this view, as he describes in his statement of what happened, that yeah, he could separate out the good and the evil, and the good could then, you know, um, move up to the heavens, so to yeah. speak, yep. uh, unhindered, uh, really there, but. It is a bit Faustian in that he's wanting to exceed the limits of the human there, you know, to, to sort of become more than human. Well, indeed. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, if it is a kind, I mean, I know this wouldn't be the way that Stevenson would have thought about it, but if it is a kind of neurotic fantasy, obviously with, you know, the kind of almost magical aspect that he can create this through, through his potions, you know, um, it, really anybody doing that wouldn't actually be undergoing moral or emotional growth but obviously intellectually you know he's, he's making these groundbreaking discoveries and he can you know in the ego and the kind of public acclaim you know that he can also yeah. achieve by being this best public version of himself you know they're a kind of pseudo growth a kind of superiority from a from a social point of view but but not really any kind of true growth there actually you know obviously it's 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 all kind of you know um neurotic and in, in its substance there um and yes i mean it, it is it, it's um and i think obviously that neurotic viewpoint is um is sort of um supported by this view of good and evil because yeah. you know in in the novel and probably in the society at large at the time morality is kind of seen as more a th- in, in in terms of uh, inhibition, you know, restraint, or you know, and you know how Freud depicted the superego as mainly saying no to yep. desires, like uh, the sort of inner check yeah. on our desires, which is actually quite a a narrow view of what morality is, because you know, if we go back 
many centuries before, people like Aristotle saw ethics as being connected with human flourishing. So, you know, in other words, the moral life wasn't something that was simply saying no to your desires. It wasn't just uh, the source of frustration. It was also something that allowed you to grow and develop and flourish. But you have no sense of that in this novel. So if we saw good as sort of something that restrains the bad, um, you, you can see then that why you'd want to just try and cut off this bad, uh, you know, siphon it off, really. I think you're um, spot on. I mean, it's like Jekyll's mindset, you know, the way he understands good. He's not He's not reflected on it. It's not derived from any own personal principles. It's just almost entirely socially imbibed, and it's about looking good. Good is, look, is what will make you look good amongst your peers. That's that's good. And, and anything, as you say, that makes you look bad is evil and must be restrained. And it's it's a very crude, actually, th- way of thinking about morality, you know, and the idea that you somehow want to divide yourself along those lines, um, it would be a terribly uh, harmful... Well, it is. Uh, I mean, the, yeah. well, one of the... One of the Victorian things about this novel is that when the narrator refers to pleasure, it's it's seen as something that is you know, undignified, something that is suspect. Yeah. Uh, because the carnal, <clears throat> the animal carnal part of ourselves is seen as bad, uh, is seen as regressive. And yet it's such an inherent part of who we are in terms of our embodiment that, you know, it's like you can't really escape from it unless, of course, you find some way to siphon that off and which is what Hyde is, you know, this animal, almost yeah. animal part of ourselves. I'm, and and it's almost like the angelic part of us can soar up to the heavens, as as uh, Jekyll thought it would. I mean, I, th- I, I think that, um, sorry, yeah. I mean, I, you know how we spoke about this being a horror story in that the evil is not simply external, it is also within. Yeah. But I think that the horror of the story extends even deeper than that because if you look at how Hyde evolved, so to speak, over the course of the novel, you know, Jekyll talks first of all about the, the sense of freedom that he felt as Hyde, the lack of restraint and how much Hyde loves life, which I think is a very telling (laughs) uh, comment. But as time goes on after he has had that incident with the child and then he has killed Sir Danvers Carew, Hyde actually starts to worry about his own safety. I mean, you know, this this novel is almost like... uh, propaganda for capital punishment because Jekyll says it was Hyde's fear of the gallows um, that scared him more than anything else. So what it's showing actually is that as Hyde evolves as a person, uh, he starts to think more prudentially, he starts to think about his own safety and, you know, Hyde taking some precautions, Hyde weeping in front of the fireside yeah. about what's going to come of him, he's starting to become more like Jekyll. And yeah. I think this is one of the unsettling things of the novel is that 
you know, Jekyll thought that his ornery self and, you know, Hyde would be quite separate. But I think what the novel actually suggests is that, uh, is, is that you know, Hyde was uh, not becoming quite Jekyll, but there wasn't so much a gap between Jekyll and Hyde as what Jekyll would have wanted and indeed what the readers would have wanted. That's a very interesting point. I, get, I guess it suggests as well that in a way that the overarching you know, kind of irrepressible power of the, 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 the you know, the, the society, actually, in terms of, you know, it will catch up with a hide. You know, if he violates its norms, then yeah, even he, this kind of, as you say, apish free spirit, you know, comes to cower before it. You know, it's it's, it's that much bigger than him. Um, and, and well, yes, yeah. I mean, the, th the thing is, in, in reality, well, Hyde is apish in some ways or seen as degenerate in that Victorian way. Um, you could also see that his Soho flat is decorated quite um, in a cultured way. You know, this is something that Utterson notices. Yeah. When him and the policeman are ransacking, you know, looking at, at the ransacked flat, is that actually it was um, decorated with some taste, which reflects Jekyll's taste. Um, when, when Hyde... Um, asks Lanyon, would he prefer if he took the potion away or take it in front of him? And he warns him that it will change his whole worldview. Lanyon wishes to see yeah. him take the potion. And, and you know, Hyde gives a very short speech about uh, how people like him have lacked uh, intellectual imagination. Yeah. Yep. Um, so actually, this character is more civilized in some ways. He's more a composite than what he might initially seem. And he grows almost into a pseudo Jekyll nearer the end, you know, because he does become quite worrisome about his future, really. Um, he's not identical with Jekyll, but I think that it is suggesting, as, I, as I've said earlier, that morality is mainly fueled by fear by a sense of prudence and Definitely. and, and, and i think yeah it's, sorry i mean it's like as we discussed at the start you know but by the logic of 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 jekyll's view of good and evil then utterston would be the pinnacle of goodness but obviously yeah. he has been critiqued here as a very sad lifeless figure actually so it's definitely all of this as being you know critiqued in a sense and, and it leaves the, the reader quite unsettled because there's not really any clear-cut answer here it's just a lot of you know a lot of horror actually in terms of of of, of, of this this view of good and evil in this well it thing. is and, and i mean you know the way that jekyll uh, explains why Hyde kills Sir Danvers Carew because it seems almost motiveless. Yeah. Um, I mean, in some ways, <laughs> in some ways, it is sort of uh, um, a bit strange that murder because yep. you know, <laughs> Sir Danvers Carew stops Hyde to ask him, you know, maybe it's some like directions, but he, you know, he wishes to be informed about something by Hyde, and Hyde actually stops, yeah. Um, so if he was the very embodiment of impatience and uh, and animal-like, I can't really imagine that he would have stopped. There's a degree of decorum there that's a, bit, a little bit ironic. But sure, yeah. anyway, you know, Jekyll explains Hyde's attack as that he'd been caged for so long 
that it was almost like this tiger being released from the cage and uh and you know there was this great desire and impatience uh to go out and you know satisfy his pleasures and that's why he attacked Danvers crew. Now it's not a very you know, sophisticated or compelling psychological explanation as to why he did what he did. But the reason I'm raising it just now is that um, there is, in that explanation, um, you know, basically a, a worldview regarding good and evil, which is that actually evil has a primacy. Uh, it is primal. It is, uh, it is primary. Okay. And it's locked up in this cage of morality. Yeah. That's all morality is, really, is is, yep. is a cage. Yeah. And then if that cage breaks, then out comes romping Hyde. Um, and so it's it's not actually a very flattering depiction of what goodness is or what morality is. Uh, it actually gives uh, evil, if we want to use that term, uh, much more a primacy. Uh, it's much more fundamental I think than good. A, yeah, I think that's that's a very fair point, and it, it is interesting that that yeah, as you described, really quite peculiar murder scene whereby it's ultimately his motive is is just sheer impatience at somebody stopping him and, and talking for too long to the point he he seems to lose it. And in, in this, you know, it's a very peculiarly motivated uh, murder. But of, but then of course once he once he lashes out, he can't stop himself you know he keeps hitting him and hitting him until he's killed him but yeah very very strange and as you said just the sense of evil just just in there that's just once it's out it's out in the in the the kind of slightly um you know vulnerable good cage that's that's trying to keep it in place that just can't really quite contain it yes um, it's, yeah it's, it's yeah i mean it, and, and i mean if we if we look at the the melodramatic depiction of or description of Sir Danvers Carew. I mean, he's obviously this MP, this upper class gentleman, yeah. and he's portrayed as quite angelic, almost as so that Aishel of the society, you know, the, the people that would be adhering, at least ostensibly, to the to to the good life, you know, yeah. to respectability. Um, yeah. he's, he's portrayed as the very embodiment of kindness. Um, there, I think it was important for the the novel that he did murder Sir Danvers Carew because Danvers Carew, as uh, this eminent gentleman, meant that it would become so public what Hyde had done. Sure. Whereas, um, you know, as we've seen in say the the Yorkshire Ripper cases, that uh, when he was initially killing prostitutes at the time, there wasn't really much of a headway in the investigation because these people very sadly weren't uh, deemed important enough. Very tragic. Uh, so yes, if, if, if Hyde had been killing some prostitutes in the novel, I don't think it would have created that public scandal that killing Danvers Carew did. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, obviously, it's it's such that um, Hyde is permanently on the run, you know, from that point onwards. And, yeah. You know, the idea that everybody's out looking for him because, yeah, because he has he's killed somebody eminent. So, no, I think that's true. I think you're right. It does highlight that. Yeah, again, the idea that you know the evil of a murder is is considered more evil the more eminent supposedly yeah. the individual, the the victim. Yeah, I think that's true.
obviously Jekyll in his letter, his you know he, his reflections on this disaster that he's led himself into is to come to the conclusion that um, as human beings we simply have to live with these this irreconcilable dual nature as he saw it now we don't obviously have to agree with that prognosis but this sense that we're simply condemned to live with that and that's that's probably about as much as is put forward as a as a as an answer you know to this mm. predicament you know i mean obviously there's the utterston solution which is the kind of you, you know the repressive solution and the conformity and so on but n not very satisfying and um, so do you, i mean how much do you think there's a kind of victorian kind of worldview really skewing this take on the human predicament here is 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 this the case is that is that the right way to formulate it that we just we live with good and evil urges in us and we're just kind of somewhat split in that sense or or do you think that's a yeah well i think i think um if you defined the bad or the evil in part as connected with um you know embodiment with the body with yeah. the animal side then you could see why you'd be condemned yeah. to always having that conflict because we have a body and we have an animal nature. But I, I don't, I think there's a real problem with um, this idea of parts, you know, partitioning yeah. the good and the evil. I mean, I'm thinking about uh, the well-known psychoanalyst Melanie Klein, mm -hmm. and she talks about... Um, two positions that a person could have uh, from an emotional point of view towards the world, the paranoid schizoid position and the depressive position, uh, the depressive position being more a sign of maturity. But the paranoid schizoid position is where we split people into good and bad. Yeah. Uh, it may be that there's good people, the, the group that we identify with, and then there's the baddies, you know, our opponents who are totally evil. Yep. Or it may be that we we split a person into the good and the bad, and we want to relate to the, the so-called good while overlooking uh, the bad. You yeah. know, that could be a way of idealizing someone. It could also be a way of moving between idealizing and denigrating them, you know, moving yeah. back and forth pendulum-wise. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I think whereas the depressive position is recognizing that that person uh, has good and bad traits, that they're a mixture of qualities, um, yeah. that, that it is complex, and that you can't simply idealize them and you can't simply condemn them either. But you're 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 forced to a more complicated emotional response. And as she's sort of intimating, it's difficult for human beings to inhabit that space of complexity and nuance. Yeah. We are we are rather fond of splitting things and uh seeing seeing others and ourselves in this uh dichotomous kind of light yeah uh really there so but That's i think the thing about separating seeing the good and the evil as as different parts or you know just uh as separate is that not only is that not true um i don't think we just have a good part and a bad part and they're separated by some sort of you know psychological partition i don't think that's how we are um we're a blend of qualities um rather than this sort of stark parts 
But I think, you know, primary problem from my point of view of seeing ourselves as uh, having good parts and bad parts is that it it sort of um, condemns the bad part to being abandoned. You know, that, that becomes then the destiny of that part because it's like... It's like we can't do anything about that. So, you know, we may we may not try and educate or cultivate it. It almost becomes um separated from our reason, really. It's like we can make no rational appeal to that part. Yeah. Uh, which I don't think is the case because obviously there's aspects of our nature that we don't like. Um, but it may vary at each stage of our life. I mean, you know, these parts could grow and evolve too. Uh, they are still subject to learning. They're still subject to reason. Whereas if we kind of just see them as a as a separate part that there's nothing we can do with, uh, th that we could, you know, change in them, then they become like, you know, we become like a parent that sees a, a child as being hopeless, that we can't really... Um, help them to change which is yeah. abandon that part i think i think that's spot on i mean it's such a kind of bleak perspective really and it's like the kind of bleakness that pervades the novel you know the the sense that the evil is just repressed and put down and killed off or the the parts of the self you know that that's what that's all that can be really done with them you know in that very kind of fatalistic way which i suppose in a way is a little bit like you know the kind of I guess the Freudian view about about the superego that really you know you you have neurosis when it's too strong or or too lax and there's an appropriate level of kind of superego control of our instincts and so on. But yeah, that view. I mean, obviously over time we've had more of the kind of you know the kind of humanistic psychology movement whereby. I think, as you suggested, people, you know, there might be a slightly more nuanced view of the different parts of ourselves that, you know, and, and certainly a sense that they aren't something fixed, actually, you know, that there can be there can be change there and integration to some extent. So um, and, and also, of course, as you mentioned earlier, the idea that when we bring them into consciousness rather than burying them in the unconscious, you know, at least then, even if we don't want to act on them at all times, we actually we're, we're, they're still us, you know, we're still kind of holding them within our yes. self in a way that makes them actually have less power over us you know in a way they're, they're not the shadow side so much there they're just a, a part of ourselves that we can either work with or or, or whatever it may be so um yeah yeah well i mean i think i think that's the the yeah. case i mean you know if we see it from a carl rogers point of view um carl rogers you know said that we all have these murderous wishes or these desires that aren't always um uh, pro-social yeah. in their orientation but his view was that if you overall accepted yourself with what he called unconditional positive regard then your choices would be much more towards the pro-social towards doing the right thing uh, in his view if you didn't accept these parts of the of your of yourself then they would be repressed they would slip into unconsciousness. There would be then this, you know, start inner conflict between the self-concept, you know, what you thought you consciously were and uh, what you were overall yeah. uh, yep. there. So both Carl Rogers and Freud are talking about integration, which means inviting these parts into awareness, try to see 
if they can uh, be used constructively uh, or have they to be accepted and that you act in spite of them, um, and in you, both you cases, know, rather than suppressing them. Sorry, yeah, yeah ex exactly. And I think the, the, the Melanie Klein um, uh, description there was absolutely spot on because, what you know, the, the depressive position, which obviously sounds like a kind of, you know, I think that maybe slightly unfortunately um, termed there because what we're really talking about is more a more adult in touch with reality point you know which is is as you see you're not you're not idealizing you're 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 accepting a little bit of you know parts of yourself that are maybe a bit difficult to work with and they have to sort of be tolerated and you know it's a much more nuanced take on everything rather than than just this more let's wish it away kind of more infantile paranoid schizoid way of being or sort of perceiving yourself in that sense you know you're yes, you're, you're yeah. ideal or you're you're the worst possible evil you're there's, you're not some kind of complicated mixture in a way um so yeah. well yes yeah i mean i i think she probably called it the depressive position because there is a loss there, at least initially. And there is yeah. this sort of assumption in, in psychoanalysis that reality is, at least initially, a bit downbeat compared yeah. to having our wishes satisfied. Um, but again, it's a bit like what Anna Freud said, that, that dreams are satisfying but not fulfilling. And yep. so to have fulfillment, you've got to engage with reality. And and so yeah, if if we're if we're idealizing people and denigrating others, not only is that a recipe for violence, but it's also a recipe for, you know, being satisfied in a delusional way, but not really being fulfilled. Um, Absolutely, yeah. There, uh, and I think also another thing that that's worth considering in terms of the dangers of seeing ourselves as good and evil, you know, this dichotomy. Yeah. Is that, you know, it it doesn't look at the sufficient complexities, which is that um, you know, what we might term as good could be in some context bad and vice versa. Yeah. So I mean, you know, if we see it in a kind of Jekyll-like way, um the part of us that could, you know, be murderously aggressive. Uh, I mean, psychoanalysts uh, say that we all have murderous wishes, and Theodore Wright could actually say, uh, you know, a murderous wish a day keeps the analyst away. Um, but <laughs> okay. the th and I mean, you know, you might think, well, what is, what are they talking about? But then, if you look at how popular uh, serial killer documentaries or slasher movies are, there's obviously part of the psyche that can resonate with yeah. that as unpleasant yeah. as it is now if we yeah. see it in a jekyll like way we're going to just see that as oh that is part of our evil side yeah but you know a jungian or a gestalt therapist could look at it in a different way and what they could look at is that say if you had a dream and, and you know people do have these dreams these nightmares uh, from time to time, you know, where they're, they're being stalked by a Michael Myers kind of figure. Yeah. And, you know, the Gestalt therapist, if they were working with that dream, would ask the person to identify with that figure and, and to articulate what they were thinking or feeling because it would be getting in touch with this aggressive side of their yeah. nature. But that aggressive side could have quite a lot of energy. And so integrating it into the self could actually help you to be more motivated 
actually to to have a kind of more aggressive uh, forward take on um, your projects, on your ambitions. So, you know, just to call it categorically evil might be downplaying in some ways in which it could serve a constructive purpose. I think um, that's, that's a great point. I mean, it just seems so striking in this novel, as we discussed, that, you know, the, the vitality and the energy and spontaneity of Hyde is just seen as evil. It just seems such a kind of strange way to label those yeah. parts when, as you say, there's all kinds of context, and including the aggressive parts where they're actually extremely helpful and could be pro-social, constructive parts, actually. You know, it's well, that yes, kind of... yeah. I yeah, mean, there's that, almost that Nietzschean point in the book, is it, that, that when Jekyll um, concedes that, you know, how much Hyde loved life. It's then this idea, well, how much does Utterson love life? Well, exactly, exactly. And yeah. and, and so is it this Nietzschean point that morality is anti-life or some moral systems are anti-life? Um, yeah. You know, I think that's raised in this novel too. I think that's it. I mean, I think I mean it's it's interesting in a way to to get into the, these kind of considerations with this this uh, novella because it is it does seem a little bit to me like that it is posing a lot of ethical questions that that you really do need to think deeply about to come up with a an answer to. And obviously, they were the you know maybe the questions that Stevenson did have of of his society actually. And I think I think that's I don't I don't know how much he, he thought of it in those terms, but I think yeah the, these issues of in, integration you know really are are key, and that's what was what was being missed in, in, in that world really, um, I guess I think maybe we're, we're um, probably just about out of time for, for this one yes, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, thanks so much we haven't given a full statement of the case but uh, we haven't indeed we might, which is not possible <laughs> no, when we're no. talking about the moral being of humankind yeah. but let's hope that we've helped people to you know reflect a bit more on this you yeah. know iconic novel i mean such a short novel but yeah such a kind of rich one when, when it comes to these kinds it of is yeah things. and and one final thing i would say about it is that if anyone wants to engage with uh, a film adaptation yeah. of this novel that in in my opinion the the best one to watch is the 1931 yeah. pre hades code version with frederick march yeah uh, he won an oscar a much deserved oscar for playing Jekyll and Hyde, he plays both parts very convincingly, very memorably. Uh, sadly, it was, a, it was a low point in Spencer Tracy's career, playing Jekyll and Hyde 10 years later. Mm -hmm. It had great production values and great stars in it, but... Yeah, somehow Tracy could not pull it off. Yes, no, it's true. I mean, March he's he's a little bit forgotten now. Um, he's not so you know it can be say compared to Tracy in terms of how many people would recognise the name, but he was an incredible talent. And I think you're right. That was a that was it for for such a you know a, a movie from 1931. It is an incredibly good adaptation of this story. It certainly it is, and and it, it also highlights the. This idea of Hyde being both animal and uh, bourgeois sadist, that, that, that March is able to play both parts of Hyde's nature very well uh, in that movie. Yeah. Excellent. So yeah, well, that's there's, just a there's recommendation, the movie recommendation to our viewers yeah. anyway. Fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for that, Okay, Alex. thank you for that as well. That. Yeah, cheers. Good night.